everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Um, I wanted to begin again today. Emily started this um, with, with her sermon last week, and I think we're still in a spot where um, it makes a lot of sense to just pause and have a moment of silence for what's going on in Ukraine and in Russia, um, just to hold them in our prayers. So let me start us off with just a little bit of silence here. Father, as we hear stories and read the news, um, as we get letters and notes from people that are there or have family who are there, I, I just I don't want it to become far from my heart, the suffering um, and the senselessness and the sadness of what's going on. Um, we pray for the people of Ukraine. We pray for mercy and we pray for healing for their country that would begin even now. We pray that this war would stop. We pray for the Russian soldiers, um, for the folks that are the enemies and that are fighting, and we pray for Putin. Um, God, we, we want to see your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You, you told us to pray that way, and over this situation, it's just so easy to see this is not heaven. This is not what it's supposed to look like. So Jesus, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. Uh, we look to you first. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, we here get to continue on in this sermon series that we've, we're still pretty new and called Party On. And as I was thinking about stuff for this week, uh, I was reminded of when Ashley and I were engaged and, um, we were so excited, as you can imagine. We, there was this condo. She was in, she was in grad school at Denver Seminary. I was living up here, but she had one more year left. And so we bought this little condo down in Littleton. And this is in 2007. So this has nothing to do with the story, but we bought this place and then the market tanked in 2008. So as a young married couple, it was like, cool financial decision. We just got it punched in the throat. It was terrible. But that, those first few months when we had the place was so funny because she, leading up to our wedding day, she had her own apartment on campus at Denver Seminary. I was living up here. Nobody lived in this place. It just sat there. But when we would have date nights, we would meet at the condo, and there were like no couches. There's no chair. There's, no, there's nothing. It's just a big empty box. And we would meet there, and we would get like a pizza, um, and we would set the box on the floor. We'd set our backs against the wall. We would open up a laptop, and we'd put in a DVD into the laptop. And, that, and it was the best. It was a great date night. And there was just this sense of like, this is all I need. This is all for right now, for where we're going, like, who needs a couch? This is, it's just good to be with you, and I know that there's more to come. And I'm not, I'm not at all a, a musical kind of guy, like musicals. I, I hate musicals, actually. But I think if I could capture it, if I could really solidify uh, what was going on in this moment, there, it is a musical moment for me. And if I could build the soundtrack around it, I would choose this song, and I think it might actually even look something like this. 
Yep, that's what I would pick. I don't know if you caught it. She plays air tambourine there for a second. That, man. So if you're under the age of 30 in the crowd today, this is what music videos used to look like. Also, I'm so sorry if you've never seen anything like that. It's terrible. The bangs, man, there's so much good stuff happening. But I, th I think early on, early on for us in that relationship, there was just this sense of like, we can start with whatever little bit we have together because we know that there's more to come. We've only just begun. Like, it's, it's just, it's easy to not have a couch right now because we've only just begun. It's, this is just the beginning of something. That's what makes that time so fun. There, there was a promise of more. And as we're diving into this Old Testament story today, I want you to hang on to that particular line. We've only just begun. Because I think the story that we're going to be diving into today, it carries that culture of that line. And if you're going to see this story and if you're going to see this party for what it is, you've got to keep this image of a young, excited couple with a promise in front of them. So the party that we're jumping into today, it's a festival, and it's called the Festival of the First Fruits. And this is something that shows up in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Matthew, in all over the New Testament. I mean, it's everywhere. You're going to see the idea of first fruits pop up all over the place. But it's really a funny, <laughs> a funny party when you get into it. And so the book of Deuteronomy, if you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 26, if you brought your Bible with you, we're going to launch in there because that kind of outlines, here's how this party goes. And um, there's, there's a couple of funny things that go on. So I'm going to get, I need this, sorry. I'm going to need this over here. Got a basket. I got some money. Okay. So here's how this goes. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 1. Once you enter the land that God your God is giving you as an inheritance and take it over and settle down, you are to take some of all the fruit, first fruits of what you grow in the land that God your God is giving you, put them in a basket, and go to the place God your God sets apart for you to worship him. Right away, notice how frequently he's saying, the land, the land, go to the place. The, I mean, this is very geographically tied. At, the same, at that time, go to the priest who is there and say, I announce to God, your God, today that I have entered the land that God promised our ancestors that he'd, that he'd give to us. The priest will take the basket from you and place it on the altar of God, your God, and there in the presence of God, your God, you will recite. Okay, you're also now starting to notice God, your God, God, your God, God. So there's this big like the land and God. Those are two huge things that we have to be really tied into. And then it says, and there in the presence of God, your God, you will recite. Okay, pause, because this is strange. This is a party that God is saying, I'm going to outline this whole thing. Here's how you do it. We talked about Sabbath a lot to kick off our year together. At no point when God is talking about Sabbath, anywhere in Scripture does he say, okay, and then when you get to 9 o'clock at night, here's the speech, like the specific speech that I want you to give. It's, it's really bizarre. This really does not show up in a whole lot of other places in any other party. It's really unique to this festival of the first fruits. So you're going to take some of what you have, some of what shows up. So I've got a tenth. I only ever get about a tenth of the Monopoly board when I play with my kids. So this is representative for me. You're going to put it in a basket. You're going to walk into the, the temple, to the tabernacle. You're going to put it, you're going to give it to the priest. He's going to put it on the altar. And then you lay into this grandiose speech. Are you ready? 
A wandering Aramean was my father. He went down to Egypt and sojourned there. He was he and a, just a handful of his brothers at first, but soon they became a great nation, mighty and many. The Egyptians abused and battered us in, a, in cruel and savage slavery. We cried out to God, the God of our fathers. He listened to our voice. He saw our destitution, our trouble, our cruel plight. And God took us out of Egypt with a strong hand and a long arm, terrible and great, with signs and miracle wonders. And he brought us to this place, gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. So here I am. I've brought the first fruits of what I've grown on this ground that you gave me, oh God. That's the speech. And God is saying, when you bring your basket and your monopoly money and you set it down, these are the words, say these particular words. Weird. And then it finishes out. Then place it in the presence of God, your God. Bow low in the presence of God, your God, and rejoice. Celebrate all the good things that God, your God, has given you and your family, you and the Levite and the foreigner who lives with you. Party on. This, this is this party of the first roots. Now, if, if you're like me, you're reading this and you're going, okay, um, this, is, this is actually kind of helpful. This gives me a pretty easy checklist to do. Uh, why? <laughs> why are we giving one-tenth? Um, that's, that's the idea that's going to come out of here. Where, where does this idea of a tithe come from? First fruits in this, in this ancient culture would be this very particular idea, and it wasn't just the Jewish people who this text comes from, but all of the cultures around them, general temple worship in this region was always one-tenth. And I worked really hard to discover why. Why was it one-tenth? Who came up with that? And you know what I figured out? We don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> why? How did they get to one-tenth? But it's really clear. It's one-tenth of the first things that grow. But why? Like, where does this story come from? And if we're going to be good students of the text, I hope that we don't just read a story like this and shrug our shoulders and be like, well, I guess we'll just go through the motions. We're going to give this rando speech. We'll cut off that much of our paycheck. And we're that, I don't think that's the heart behind what God ever does. I don't think it's a hear the checklist, knock these things off, we're golden. I think there's always a story behind it. What drives this? And I think if we're going to nail that down, we've got to be good students of the text. And it, there's actually some really fun hints that show up right away that point us directly to where this story is. The first line of the speech says this, a wandering Aramean was my father. Now, if you're like, that is not that helpful, um, it wouldn't have been that helpful to me either. I had spent some time going, okay, where do Arameans show up in the Old Testament? And there's one, and he's a pretty famous one, and his name is Jacob. Jacob's mom was an Aramean, and we're going to pick up Jacob's story today because then when you dive into his story and what happened in his life, this whole idea of first fruits, this whole party explodes into color, and it's so much fun. So here's some context that you need to know. We're diving, this is like Old Testament. This is Genesis type story stuff. Jacob was born um, to his mom, uh, who was the Aramean, and then his dad, who was from the line of Abraham. Pretty famous dude. And he had a twin brother whose name was Esau. When these two dudes were born, Esau came out first, but they, it, it even said, even in her womb, they were fighting and struggling and wrestling. And so when Esau was born first, 
out comes Esau, here comes the head, we've caught the baby, and on his heel, like practically dragging him back in, but really trying to pull himself out on his brother, is grasping this other baby. He's got Esau by the heel, and it's kind of this like, there we go, we got two babies all at once. Pretty wild. For those of you that are labor and delivery nurses, I understand that that's like frightening if it would happen that quickly. It's okay, just go with it. Um, but fast forward and the story of what was happening in the womb for these brothers continues. They're just, they're constantly fighting. They're very different men. And it gets to the point where one day, and I'm, I'm rifling us through Jacob's story to get to the nugget that we really want to look at today. But there's one day that Esau had been out hunting. He was a hunter. And he came in. He didn't have any food. I mean, he was famished hungry. And this guy, from what I understand, was kind of built like an NFL linebacker. And so when he's hungry, he's angry hungry, you know. He comes in, and there's no food except Jacob has just made some stew. And he says, give me some of your stew. And, and Jacob says, I will give you some of my stew if you give me your birthright. Which again, for us today is like, okay, that's kind of like weird language. But in this culture, that was a huge deal. The way that transition of an inheritance would work is in this situation, if you had two boys, you would actually create three portions. You would divide your property into three portions. And the oldest one gets two of one portion and then the youngest just gets the one, or all the others get just the one. If you're the oldest, you're getting a double down of whatever mom and dad have to pass on. But it's way more than just the stuff. You're inheriting the blessing of the family name. Like, it's really, everything's being put on to you that you're going to carry the story of our family forward. So it's not just a transition of wealth and stuff, but it's this receiving of like, the family line is up to me now. I have to continue this story. So when Esau's coming in, he's angry, hungry, and he's saying, give me some stew. And Jacob is saying, well, I'll trade you stew for a birthright. This is a poor deal. And Esau's a moron. <laughs> because right away he goes, I'm hungry. Give me the stew. And he's, he gives away the most important, precious thing that you could receive at this time in the world. So the story continues, and this is where like, it goes from like, this family is super weird and these brothers are really fighting, and now you start to see like, the full Italian mafia version of this family come to the surface because his mom one day overhears his dad telling Esau that he's about to transition the inheritance. He's about to bless him, Esau, because he's, he's not super aware that this has gone on. He's definitely not on board with it. So mom hears that this is going on and she runs to Jacob and she said, it's about to happen. He's about to do all the things, to pray all the prayers, to lay the hands, to pass on the inheritance. We've got to trick him. <laughs> it's family, you guys. It's not, is not pretty. Um, she, so they get him all dressed up. They literally wrap goat skins around his arms to make him seem more hairy. And, all, and, and they, they pull him into the tent and his dad right away is like, is blind. He goes, are you sure that you're Esau? And he goes, oh yeah, I'm Esau, for sure. You're sure you're Esau. I am definitely Esau. Feel <laughs> my goat hair. You're sure you're Esau? I'm sure I'm Esau, three times. Not a small thing to, be, to find the number three in scripture. Three times he asks him, three times I'm sure I'm Esau. And then he gives him this blessing. He gives him the inheritance. He, gives, he, he passes the family on to Jacob. It's not good. Esau comes home from wherever he was. He hears about what happened, and he um, starts sharpening his blades 
because he's going to kill his brother. Not like, I'm mad, I'm going to kill you. Like, I'm literally going to kill you. You just took the most important thing from me. Yeah, 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 the stew, the stew. I cannot believe you did that. You lied to dad. You took what was rightfully mine. I am going to kill you. And so Jacob, not being an NFL linebacker, does what I think is fairly understandable. He runs away. <laughs> and so that's where we're going to catch up to Jacob in the story. I think if you're going to understand it, you have to see it on a map. So here's a map of where we're talking about. This is going to be kind of Israel in the middle. Um, yeah, Israel's kind of right there, right on the coast of the water in the scoop. And so um, if, if you want to know, we actually have a picture of what Jacob looked like. So here's Jacob. Um, Yep, he's little, but he's powerful. Um, and he lives, um, he lives right now in a place called Beersheba. That's where his family is hanging out when this story happens. So there's Beersheba. Now, you need to know that he's really only got one place to go, and it's to his uncle Laban's house. Laban lives in Aramea. So he's got to go to Uncle Laban's. Uncle Laban lives 450 miles away in a place called Haran. So here's where Haran is, and if you're like, that looks far, but it's the Middle East. Is that like Rhode Island compared to Texas? How far is that? That's like saying, I'm going to run away from here to Albuquerque. It's about the same, about 450 miles. Now we're just starting to catch up to our story because here's what happens next. He gets about a day away, probably about 30 miles. Um, it's like roughly from here to Castle Rock. He's running literally for his life. He gets to Castle Rock. He's exhausted. He lays down, he puts a rock under his head for a pillow, and oh, there's such wonder of like, why a rock? It's so cool. We don't have time for it today. He lays down, he sleeps, he has this wild dream about this ladder, and that's its own. Like, there's so much cool stuff that's happening in the story. But he has this vision of this ladder where angels are coming up and down from heaven to earth. And um, he wakes up, and that's where we're going to catch our story. In Genesis 28, if you want to turn there, why do we celebrate this festival of the first fruits? Why do we give a tenth of what first comes out of the ground at the beginning of the year for these Jewish people? What is going on in this story? Here's the story behind the story. Then God stood before him, Jacob, saying, I am God, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. I'm giving the ground on which you are sleeping to you and your descendants. Okay, stop right there. Oh, the map. If you were to look at that map again, the place where they are is a place called Bethel, Bethel. If you were to look at where Bethel and Jerusalem are situated, it's about eight miles apart. If you were to look just generally at where he is, he is smack dab in the middle of a place that now today we call Israel. And God says, the, the place where you have slept tonight, Castle Rock, <laughs> I'm going to give this to you. But he goes on. I'll give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. They'll stretch from west to east and from north to south. All of the families of the earth will bless themselves in you and your descendants. Yes, I'll stay with you. I'll protect you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this very ground. I'll stick with you until I've done everything I've promised you. And Jacob woke up from his sleep and he said, God is in this place, truly. And I didn't even know it. He was terrified. He whispered in awe, incredible, wonderful, holy. This is God's house. Do you know what's going to be built eight miles from there that's still roughly around today? The temple, Mount. 
where Jerusalem, where the, the Jewish people, this, this is, it's all happening right here, but that's looking from the future backwards. In this moment, it's rocks. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob was up first thing in the morning. He took the stone from his head and he, that he had used as a pillow and he stood it up as a memorial pillar. He poured oil all over it and he christened that place Bethel, God's house. The name of the town had been called Luz until then. Jacob vowed a vow and this, oh, this, this is it, y'all. If God stands by me and protects me on this journey on which I'm setting out, keeps me in food and clothing and brings me back in one piece to my father's house, this God will be my God. The stone that I have set up as a memorial pillar will mark this as a place where God lives and everything you give me, I will return a tenth to you. Pretty cool. And and I think it's incredibly important to notice the reason why he's doing this is it's a response. God doesn't tell him in this moment, here's what I'm gonna do, but here's what you have to do. God just straight up tells him, I'm going to multiply your family, east from west. I'm going to bring you back to the same place. Life, I'm going to take care of you, period. And it's only out of Jacob's response to hearing all of that that he goes, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I'll give you a tenth. If you, can, if you can follow through on all that, I'll give you a tenth of anything I ever get. That's the story that's going on here. I think if we could really boil it down, here's the basics of this story. Number one, we've got a homeless kid. Number two, he's running away from his family. Number three, he owns nothing that lasts. I mean, he has this birthright, but he can't use it at all. He's not even where his dad lives anymore. He's got nothing. He's got no future. He's got no hope. And this kid's afraid. He's doomed. He's, he's probably going to get robbed or eaten or both on, the, on this 450-mile trek to Albuquerque that he's trying to make. He's, you're just not going to make it, man. It makes total sense that in his first encounter with God, he wakes up and his, the first emotion that we get is he was terrified. <laughs> of course he is. Everything terrifies him at this point. This is a twitchy, twitchy kid. What's going on? God promised him that he would grow his family. That they would cover the earth. And then there's this like really awesome, he doesn't just say, I'm going to take care of you, but he says, every family on earth is going to be blessed through your family. Like, you're the epicenter of goodness flowing across the globe, buddy. That's part of this promise that I'm giving you. Your family's gonna come back to this particular place, and I'm gonna be with you the entire time. And I'm gonna be with them the entire, I'm never going to leave you. It is this unconditional promise that he gives him. And it's purely a response to this crazy generosity that this homeless kid has this response back. If you do this, I'll never forget. I'm so scared. I have nothing. You're promising me everything. And if you follow through, I will never forget. If you can really increase my family, which he's not married, he has no kids. If you can give me this land, he owns nothing. I'll never forget. He's saying, I'm in. I'm with you too, if you're gonna be with me. And I think if you're paying attention to the story and the heart of what's going on, there's this sense for him of this promise has just been made. I just got this little bit from the Lord, but we've only just begun. Like, I'm sitting in an empty condo right now. 
we can barely afford the red box rental DVD to go in. And it's only the beginning. Of course, I'm deliriously happy if this is what you're promising me because the future with you is bright and I want it and I'm in. And I'm not just gonna sit idly by and wait. I, I wanna participate. I wanna do this with you. That's the heart of this story. So we're gonna catch up to this story now in the book of Deuteronomy where we first read about this. And you have to understand, Jacob does go to his uncle Laban's house. He marries a couple sisters, which is sister wise, man. Pretty wild stuff in the Old Testament. They're on their way back. He's met by Esau, who still, he thinks, wants to kill him. Everything goes well for a while. He has these boys. His youngest son is named Joseph. All of Joseph's brothers hate him. You see this like, there's some major family issues that are just getting passed down. Brothers hating brothers. They want to kill him. They end up selling Joseph into slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt. And long story short, Joseph becomes the anchor that he tells the rest of his brothers and family down the road, everybody come to Egypt. It's awesome here. And as, as you know the stories, you've heard it here for the last several weeks, come here, it's awesome, turns into, oh crap, we're enslaved. <laughs> oh no, we're working for the bad guys and we can't get out. That's the story that, that's happening. So we're catching up there. Israel, this whole nation, Jacob's name gets changed to the name Israel, so that's fun. Israel, this nation, gets brought out of their slavery in Egypt. They've, they've been brought now to the promised land and, and on this journey, that's where we're getting these books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So all of that's happening while they're in transit. It's crazy to me that they're being told, hey, when you get to the promised land, don't forget this party. Don't forget to say these particular words. It's important. Because they're not, they're really not there yet. If they're there, they haven't even had time to plant crops. And that's, in this day and age, it was less about the money and more about what are you growing. You would give that tenth. But if you're nomadic, you're not growing crops. You're not there long enough to care for them. So God's telling them this when they actually can't do much about it other than remember. It's as if he's saying, don't forget, this whole thing is about trust and expectation. Don't forget I gave this to Jacob when we were sitting in an empty condo. And don't forget, it may feel to you and me like we're sitting in an empty condo. Don't forget what I've promised. It's awesome. It makes total sense that we would read into the story. Jacob actually, we don't have a record of him ever paying this tenth. But I think the reason is because Jacob actually personally never got to be back in that land. And so this promise that was made to him gets passed down into his family. And now that they're coming back into the promised land, it's like God saying, okay, don't forget where the story started. Now it's time to follow through. God is inviting a posture of faith in these stories. It's like he's saying, I know we're not there, but don't forget, remember who got you here and who is still with you. And the reciprocal idea to this is also true. When you end up in the land someday, when it's done, you'll be tempted to forget. Don't forget. I'm not gonna forget. Don't you forget. 
okay, so how, how did these people do this? How did they understand it? So the first thing that we need to know, and, and I've, I'm not a farmer. I've never been a farmer. I can see farming from a distance. And, and to me, it seems absolutely berserk that what God is asking for is the first fruits. And so what they would do is they would plant their seeds and as shoots would start coming up, they would take like a little bit of a reed and they would tie it around, almost like a bow, like picture like some yarn. You're going to tie that around the first 10% of your field that's coming up. And then whatever those plants produce that have the yarn, as soon as they start producing fruit, that's the fruit that goes to the temple. That's what's going to be given away. It would, uh, and, and, and like, you don't know, especially because it's the first fruits, you don't know, are there locusts that are going to come and like wipe out our fields this year? Because that happens. Are there going to be storms that come? Are we going to get an early freeze? I don't know if there's going to be more. Is there going to be more? Like, this is the first fruits. I, am I going to be okay? And it, it's as if God is saying, well, it depends. Do you trust me? And, and do you have an expectation? Because I know it looks like it's an empty condo and you just got your first chair and I'm asking for it. Do you trust that we're, I'm going to follow through on my end of the deal? Because I made a pretty big promise. Give me the first bit. Trust me that I'll follow through on the rest. In about mid-spring is when they would tie those roots. It would be in the, or in the, the reeds. In the late spring, that's when things would be producing. And so they would literally get a basket and they would carry it to Jerusalem. And if Jerusalem was too far away from where they were, they would sell it and they would take the money and now they're taking their monopoly boards down to Jerusalem um, if it was too far to carry. And when you got there, you had some options of, of what to do with it. You always took it to the temple. You always gave it to the Levite. You always gave this speech, which is a funny speech. We're going to hit it one more time at the end. But from there, where it actually went was a little bit up to you. You could give, you could give it to the priests, but it was, it's also so clear. And again, this shows up all over the place and every single time. It says you can give it to the Levite, which is the priest. You can give it to the foreigner, to the immigrant that's in your land. You can give it to the orphans. You can give it to the widows that's where you can spend that money. If you want to give it to me, that's where I am. Put it in those buckets. It's so cool. It's as if you were declaring yourself a part of the story when you were making this speech. A wandering Aramean was my father. Our family got sold into slavery, but then we were saved only because you said you said that you would bring us to this place and you said you would multiply everything around us, that we'd bless the world. And here I am, giving what I have to your temple, to the immigrants, to the orphans, and to the widows. I'm in this physical space, literally blessing everybody around the globe through what I do. It's amazing. And it's a declaration of faith this is the first of what I had. I don't know what's left to come. The only thing I do know is that I like sitting in an empty condo with you and I trust it's gonna fill out. You may have caught this already, but there's a story that's happening here that may be hitting close to home for you. It hits close to home for me, for sure. So it's a homeless kid. It's penniless, without a family, without a future. It's cool to keep in mind that God was reminding Israel about this before they had a home. But for those who have chosen to follow Jesus, it's always been because we've discovered the truth of our situation. 
We're all sinners. We're all messed up and broken. We've wandered away from God's house. We've cheated. We've lied. We've hurt people and we've been hurt by people. We've screwed up and it's landed us in the middle of nowhere. But somewhere along the line, God encountered us. Somewhere you heard a promise that he made to you too. And it might look a little bit like this. This is God's story. I'll give you a home. I'll restore you to your family and to me. I'll provide more than you ever could need. I have a bright future for you. You have hope to share. If you didn't know that story, today is your day. God is telling you right now the same thing that he told Joseph Jacob all those years ago. Trust me, you don't have to be a homeless wandering kid anymore. I have a family for you. I'll grow you up. I have things that I need you to learn because there are aliens and orphans and widows. There are people in need. There's a world in need of blessing and I need to train you to act like our family so that you know how to be a blessing to everything around. If this is hitting you today in a way that you're like, I'm in. I want to have this Jacob-like response of like, yes, like, I want this life. I want to live in this family. There's going to be folks up here after the service that would love to sit and just hear your story and where you're at and pray with you as we move ahead. So functionally for us, what does this mean functionally? We have to remember, and I love this series, we have to remember that this story is not just a New Testament Jesus story, but that the roots and the guts of this thing go way back. We're being grafted into a story that's been going on for thousands of years. It's incredible. This is not something that he is just demanding from you or from us. He didn't even ask it of Jacob. It was offered. It's the promise of a family and all these things. You're not beholden also to this vow. This was Jacob making a promise for his particular biological family about a, about a very specific geographical space. As we understand where the, where the scripture has taken the story, we're not, many of us, I should say, are not a part of this family of Israel, the Jewish people, and we're not now tied to this place of Jerusalem and Israel. So the vow doesn't apply, but you're invited to consider Jacob's response because God really seemed to like it. It literally shows up in every other type of text throughout scripture. Why? Because it's a response that communicates, I understand what it is that you're offering me. I'm with you. I trust you. The first 10%, it's only the beginning. We've only just begun. I'm excited for what's to come. I trust that you'll take care of me no matter what happens because that's what you've always done for thousands of years. I've watched how you work with your people. I've watched where you've brought them. I trust you. So you have to begin the personal audit process of do you trust? Can he pull through for you or are you self-dependent? Are you waiting for the last fruits so that you know how to calculate and, and make sure that you have enough and then you'll give what's left over or will you give him the first part that demands a trust that he'll take care of the rest? He wants the first because he wants you. And fundamentally, he's reminding you of your story. 
You can trust this deal. And if you keep your end of the deal, which frankly is the easier, easier side, all it means is that you're saying, yeah, I trust you. It all starts with your story. If you've never felt like I'm the wondrous or, or the, the um, lost, wandering, hopeless kid, if you've never had that feeling of like, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what to do, I've hurt everything around me, God is saying, you ha- we're, we're beginning at that point in your story. Don't forget that moment. That's where the heart of giving comes from. It starts with the first tenth. I love the idea that we have today. There's so many things in the modern world that complicate this, but the idea of an auto-deduct payment that happens as soon as you get your paycheck. I never even see that money. I don't even get to think about spending that money. It's just immediately, as soon as my paycheck hits, boom, first 10%, done. Where do you give it to? It would be radically oversimplifying it to say the church. And I want to be very thoughtful and helpful in this process. Um, We need it at the church. The church is an option. It's one of four. And I would invite you, if you have not been giving here at Discovery, but if you call this place home, for the sake of your story and your relationship with Jesus, I would just invite you. You don't have to give your whole tenth here but you should give because it's your story and it's, it involves you in the story that's been going on forever. But what else did he say to give to? We said give to the temple, give to the Levite, give to church, but give to the immigrants, give to the orphans, and give to the widows. Which if you're to expand that back and go, well, well what does that mean? Is that metaphorical? Well, no. <laughs> give to those particular people But to understand who those people are, those were the folks who had zero protection in this day and age. They had nobody looking out for them. They they had, they were like wandering Arameans lost and without a home. And God says, when you give this money, I want you to give it to people who reflect your story. So yes, it's immigrants and orphans and widows. They're part of the initial four. But who gets shoved to the margins of society? Maybe in our day and age you go, I I think it's special needs people. Particularly maybe even adults. Maybe you start to really hone it in. Where where are the groups for you that you go, I think they get shoved to the edges. What are the causes that get shoved to the edges that you go, this is the center of the heart of God that I see. I'm going to give money there. Finally, um, there's a really precious to me aspect of what they're doing in all of these stories when they say alien, orphan, and widow, immigrant, orphan, and widow, there's a sense of personal relationship. Like you weren't just wandering around going, hey, are there any orphans running around? Like these were little towns. You knew who the orphans were. They were the street kids. It was not hard to figure out who these folks were. You probably knew them by name because you spent time around them and with them. And I think if you're really going to get into the heart of this story, it is not enough to sit at home and rifle off 10% of your paycheck at the beginning of every month and be done. I think there's a mandated sense of if, if you want to understand the heart, it's not mandated like you have to do this, but if you want to understand the heart, it's mandated. You have to know people. You have to be with people. Where do you choose to give your time? Who are the folks that you pay attention to at the office or in the mom's group that you go, they just need help? and I'm going to come alongside them. 
Yes, I can give financially, but I, I see my story reflected and I want to be a blessing to the world around me. That's the heart of this thing. So if you want to understand this story out of Deuteronomy, Father's a wandering Aramean, here's my basket of Monopoly money. You have to understand Jacob's story. And in seeing Jacob's story, I hope that you understand your story. And I hope in understanding your story that you find yourself caught up in the story. And that this idea of it's a tenth, you're supposed to give a tenth that you go, this makes utter sense to me. It is the only thoughtful response. So a radical promise that I did not deserve, I'm in. I trust you with the first tenth because I know you're going to bring the rest because you promised and you're good. That's the heart of this thing. Let me bring out the band as I wrap us up with this. This speech is funny. It really makes this particular party unique. You have to say these words when you bring your basket to the priest. That really sums up the story of Jacob, but I think for us today, if we were to reword it, it might sound a little bit more like this. God, I come from a tribe of people who have wandered from home and from you, and I'm no different. I was taken captive, I've been enslaved and abused. I cried out to you, and then when there was little reason for you to respond, you did. You listened, you looked for me. When you found me, you rescued me in dramatic fashion. You brought me back home to be with you and you gave me a future that is peaceful, that's good, that's beautiful. So here I am. I've brought the first part of what I've been depending on this year. I'm not sure if there will be more, but you've always provided when I've trusted you. I wanted to give it back to you because that's what those who came before me promised they would do. I want you to know that no matter what happens, I know that I'll be okay if I'm with you. You promised I would be. You haven't broken a single promise yet. So here it is. I trust you for the rest. Amen. This is where the rubber meets the road. It's really fun to talk about Sabbath and rest and that God commands those things. I've been alluding to this for weeks. That's easy. This is a functional piece of theology for you and for me. What do you do with your life? Yes, rest on the seventh day is good. When you see money, what do you see? Is it yours? Or is it just something that God has given you to go? Will you step into the story that I've been writing for thousands of years and the story that I'm writing into you? And will you do it or not? As we sing this next song, I would love for you to consider where are we? And I know these are not simple conversations, especially in marriages or when there's more people looking at finances. I think the expectation here is not figured out today, but it is go home, spend time talking with each other, going, where are we at with our giving? And where could we be putting in a bigger shoulder into blessing the world around us? Let's stand if you're able and sing, but consider these things as you do.